I walked into sales with the idea that I had to be much smarter than the person on the phone about what I was talking about. And that was like the bare fundamentals of my job. But let me tell you something, Andy, I'm looking to buy a data analytics platform right now. But I've spoken to five vendors who sell data visualization, data analytics platforms. All five of their sales reps know less about data analytics and data viz than I do. And I am not a data scientist or data analyst. And anytime I ask a question, they immediately have to defer to the sales engineer who's on the phone. Immediately it's like, oh, hey, Sally, can you take that one? Because I'm not the expert on that. And all the person's doing is giving me this like super fluffy demo of their product inside of some sort of a sandbox environment where they're clicking things around. And anytime I ask an even lightly technical question that's off the script, they're unable to answer it. Or if they do answer it, I know for a fact because I'm listening to the answer that they're half bullshitting and half hoping that they're right. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Sahil Mansouri, and Sahil's the founder and CEO of Bravado. And in this episode, I talk with Sahil about the state of B2B sales. And in particular, we dig into some of the major elements of how we manage and compensate sellers that just appear to be broken, like quota and commission plans. And we exchange some ideas on how these could be fixed. Now, Sahil is moving full speed ahead to challenge the status quo in sales. And quite frankly, we need more voices like his in sales. So stick around. This is another great, fun conversation. Now, before we get to Sahil, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Sahil, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Um, so you're up in the midst of uh, the apocalypse in the Bay Area. Perm- permanent nighttime. Yeah, we uh, we recently painted the uh, sky orange. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge has been such an icon for San Francisco that we decided to see if we could, you know, expand the reach and appeal of it throughout the entire city. Yeah, if people are listening to this, they understand what the hell are we talking about. It's we're recording this at the time when the fires are blazing all around the Bay Area, and the sky is uh, sort of permanently dark, sort of like that you know, total eclipse, even in the middle of the day. For the first time, I think we might get some believers in this whole climate change thing. At least I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, California it will be the proving ground for the whole thing. Unfortunately, so so, uh, and you've you've got you know, you've got so many things going on. You've got uh, you're raising money for your company. You've got a new child on the way too. That's right. It's uh, you know not not satisfied with the joys of raising a startup from the ground up. Decided to take on human life at the a same human time. startup. Yes, love it, love it. Well, that is a, a wonderful adventure. So, and if eventually they grow up and they become like my producer, my son. So uh, you just spoke to. So uh, hopefully that that could be your case. So family business. Family business. All right, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about sales today. I know it's a surprise sales podcast. We're gonna talk about sales, but I want to have you on the show because yeah, I, to my mind, you're one of the few people out there that are really thinking. I'll say big thoughts about how sales needs to change and evolve 
as we move forward, and in, we're going to talk about it in multiple dimensions. And um, we'll start with one of your favorite topics, which is, I know, quota. And you weave in compensation and, and uh, free agency and all sorts of things into that conversation. But let's just start with the concept of quota itself. Is, is it still valid? Yeah, I think um, you know, it, it's important to start with what is the history of quota? You know, where did it come from? How, how does a company set one? And how does it end up into the hands of a sales rep in the first place? So at most organizations, uh, the way that quota is created, um, you have a CEO who sits down with the CFO and their VCs or their board members and will say, hey, how much revenue do we need to generate for this business uh, next year? And then they'll say, okay, well, you know, last year we generated three million. You know, next year we want to show at least three X growth. So let's say it's ten million dollars. And they'll say, okay, great. So we want to make ten million. And so someone will write the number ten million into a spreadsheet. And then they'll say, okay, well, if we need to get to ten million, and right now we're doing three million, how are we going to get there? And they're going to say, well, we can't get there right away. So we got to, you know, kind of ramp up. So maybe in Q one, you know, we'll do a million and a half. To Q2, we'll do two and a half million. Q3, we'll do three and a half million. And Q4, we'll make up the rest. And so, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a really good ramp, fair plan for people. <laughs> um, and so then, and so then these numbers get settled and they'll break them out into monthly targets and whatnot. And then they'll call in the VP of sales and they'll say to the VP of sales, hey, guess what? you're now responsible for hitting $10 million. The company has decided that next year we want to hit $10 million in revenue and you're going to make a plan to get there. And the VP of sales, because uh, of Stockholm syndrome, is going to say, okay, well, gotta, <laughs> gotta make it happen. You know, like we're going to, you know, do whatever it takes, you know, always be closing some other attributes of running through brick walls. And, mm -hmm. and so, and so they'll go out and they'll make a plan around it and they'll say, all right, well, right now my, I've got, you know, 10 sales reps and each of them has a 300 K quota. That's how we got to 3 million last year. Uh, maybe now what I need to do is I need to get to 30 sales reps with a 300 K quota that would get me to a 10 million. And then the company will say, well, we don't have the money to hire 20 more sales reps. I'll say, okay, well, you know, how much money do we have? And they're like, well, you know, maybe we can get five more reps. And you're like, okay, well, so uh, 15 reps, 10 million. Yeah, let's see. Maybe I need to give each one a 50% bump in quota, and then we can get there. And so all of this is just done in spreadsheet math. And mm -hmm. what I'm describing, what I'm describing right now, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never been a CEO, you've never been a board member, you've never been an SVP of sales or a CRO, you're listening to this and you're thinking, what the heck is this guy talking about? Like, this can't possibly be how my quota was decided. Oh, I've, 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 I've been a party to this, yes. On the, on the receiving end of yeah, this, that's right. in multiple occasions, yes. That's right. And, and then if you are a VP of sales, SVP of sales, CRO, a CEO, a founder, or a board member, you're listening to this and you're saying, of course, well, that exactly, that's exactly how it's done. Like, how else would you do it? Like the company needs to set the strategy. The company needs to make, you know, these yeah. decisions. How, like, like, how else would you do it? Right. Don't use 
<laughs> logic or analysis, but just this is how you do it. Yeah. Well, right. Well, and then, it, well, there is a, a place for logic and analysis, to be clear. You know, we haven't gotten to that part yet, though. We All we've gotten to so far, Andy, is setting the goal. Now we're going to use logic and analysis because we're going to say, okay, well, in order to make that happen, you know, we're going to need to increase our lead volume by X and we're going to need to increase our pricing Y by Y and our close rates by Z. And by doing that, we're going to be able to get from 300 uh, K per rep and 3 million a year to, you know, 600 K per rep and 10 million a year. And so, you know, the, the entire system is fundamentally broken from the ground up. Um, quota is nothing more than a aspirational number that someone drew up in a spreadsheet. And unfortunately it has real world consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the real world consequence is uh, an incredible amount of stress on the life of a sales professional, unfair, unrealistic expectations of the sales team, raising of uh, pricing to uh, to levels that are unsupported by the demand of what customers are willing to pay, uh, shortening of sales cycles beyond reason pushing deals through the funnel, discounting multi-year, you know, all of this sounds really uh, germane to sales, but actually all of it is taking the exact wrong approach to the way we should be thinking about sales, which is that we should be putting our customers first. And I think yeah. that, and I think that's like the core of what Provado as a company stands for, what I as an individual stand for is to say that the entire system of sales needs to be rebuilt from the ground up in order to put customers first. And if we're going to do that, we've got to start by listening to our clients in the market for how quotas are set and how we think about uh, achieving goals rather than trying to artificially draw numbers on a whiteboard or a spreadsheet. Yes, to all that. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's sales is broken in so many ways. And that uh, break has been accelerated over the last 10, 15 years. So we start with this idea of quotas. Quota ties into so much of what you were talking about and so much of sales. But you said, you know, let's go back and think about quota. I mean, quota is really, it's a, it's a labor concept, right? As we used to pay laborers, in some cases still do, on piecework basis. And quota is basically the sort of very old-fashioned system of we're paying you piecework. You you do this thing, and we're going to pay you a certain amount for that. And it has no tie to, you know, so much written in sales these days about how we improve performance and so on. And people always want to tie it to quota. And it really has, those two things are completely disconnected, performance and quota. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. Imagine you went to your design team at a company and you said, hey, look, um, we're going to pay you, you know, six dollars per pixel of that that you draw that we implement on our landing page, or we're going to pay you, you know, a hundred and fifty bucks per page that you design. Um, you, you know, it, and let's say that you actually convinced them to do it. Let, let's let's ignore the ridiculousness of the example, mm -hmm. and sure. let's just say you you got people to do that. Do you think the quality per page would go up or would go down if we were to say, hey, we're going to pay you per page? 
I think every single person would know the answer to that is obvious. I mean, if you tell someone I'm going to pay you in volume, then I'm going to increase the volume in order to increase my payment, even at the expense of quality. And that's exactly what happens to the sales process. That's what happens to our customers. That's what happens to our uh, uh, you know, the relationships that we build. Sales has become a volume game. It's how many emails can you send? How many calls can you make? How many, uh, how much uh, pipeline fork do you have in your forecast? Uh, how many deals have you closed? How many, how many contracts have come in? How quickly have they come in? Well, it's gotten worse I've- than that, though. So in sales right now, at least in practice by, let's say, SaaS companies and so on, which is you know increasing segment of, of sales, is they're just playing the odds. I mean, you take the logical extension of of everything being a number, is selling really is sort of stopped to some degree because we know that if we can just create enough activity, we have a certain percentage that will convert at each stage. We just need to put more into the top of the funnel to hit a certain target. And so we're just playing the odds. And it's like, okay, what about actual selling? <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, don't 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 get carried away, Andy, right? Like <laughs> yeah, don't, was, don't yeah. sound so old fashioned. You actually want to sell something. It's it's but well the whole thing is and your example about the the pixels on page and so on is so there's you may be familiar with this, there's uh, was an English economist back in the sixties named Charles Goodhart, and he came up with this formula called Goodhart's Law. And there's been papers done on to prove out this but his law was is that when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. And so you think about that in the context of quota. Is, and the reason it loses all value as a measure is because, to the point you were just making about the pixels on a page and so on, is you optimize your process to achieve the target. And so it loses value as a measure because <laughs> you don't really care about about optimizing productivity, you care about hitting the target. And I guess, you know, another really famous, uh, uh, you know, economist, W. Edwards Deming, um, has, has has a lovely quote on this as well, which is, if you give a manager a numerical target, he'll make it, even if he has to destroy the company in the process. Yeah, well, he's got another another similar saying, which is that you know every process is perfectly designed to get the results it gets, <laughs> and that's right. That I don't think there's ever truer words ever spoken about about sales. Is that yeah, every process is perfectly designed to get the system it gets. And and I guess where we need to go back to. So, okay. So I think we can spend a lot of time talking about all the reasons why quotas and commissions and, and, and the structure itself is fundamentally broken, but the, the immediate outcry that comes out is, is in one of two flavors. The first flavor is the reason I got into sales in the first place was because I wanted to make a lot of money and sales gives me the potential to Mm -hmm. make a significant amount of money. Uh, and I'm taking on the risk. Uh, and I'm willing to barter the risk because the payment, the payout is worth it. Um, right. And, 
every company has its stories of the sales reps that, you know, hit 400% of quota and made 500 grand in a single paycheck and, mm-hmm. you know, flew, uh, flew to, you know, Mexico for the weekend and got a Rolex and a Ferrari and P club and this and that, you know, sales is, uh, always glamorized, but unfortunately there's this messy thing we have called uh, data and reality. Um, and so let's talk about that for a second really quickly. Just, just you know, the, it, it reminds me, I really liked what you said about it being an odds game because in many ways people, you know, don't realize this, but sales is a lot like playing the lottery and you're saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk in order to try and get a big reward. And, you know, sometimes you, you play the lottery and you don't win, but like that's why you keep playing because you keep playing next, next month in order to hit the big one. And a lot of sales reps see their role that way. They see themselves as, you know, kind of getting ready to hit that really big deal, that really big paycheck that's going to make all the you know pain and sacrifice worth it so let, let, let me give you some stats on this um in uh 2019 so this is last year right this is not 2020 you know mm-hmm. recession and economy and covid and whatnot 2019 economic boom you know stock prices higher than ever everyone's employed etc 53 percent of sales reps missed their quota so right. more than half of sales professionals missed their quota. Um, the average tenure for a sales professional is less than 12 months. It's just exactly 11.4 months is the average tenure for an account executive in sales. The average tenure for a VP of sales, uh, famously, Selling Power had an article in 2010, uh, June 2010. I just looked it up a, a couple of days ago. Uh, the the tenure for VP of sales uh, was pegged at 27 months back in 2010. So in 2010, average tenure of VP of sales was 27 months. And it was heralded, the, the front page of the article was, there's a crisis because <laughs> because the average tenure for a VP of sales so has short, plummeted. Right? Has right. plummeted. It used to be 48 months. It's then it was 36 months. Now it's 27 months. You know, heaven forbid it should ever break below 24 months. You wouldn't even stay at a company for two years as an executive level member of the yeah, organization. You don't even right? get through two full business cycles. Yeah, 17 months, Andy. Yeah, 17 yeah, months is I, the average tenure for a VP of sales. So okay, so so you know, 53% of reps aren't making quota. They're getting fired in less than a year and VPs of sales are out in 18 months. And so what system is it that you're so passionate about preserving? Because every time that I've ever sat in on a conversation, which, you know, because I both angel invest, my wife is a VC, I'm the CEO of a company that has a board and has raised $15 million in funding. And I've been a VP of sales at four different companies. Mm -hmm. Every time I've ever sat in on a conversation that has to do with sales compensation, I can assure you that any time a rep makes a lot of money, immediately there's a conversation of, okay, cool. How do we make sure that that doesn't happen again? Yep. Because, because you may think, oh, the sales comp plan is incentivized for me to go and kill my number and so that I can make a ton of money. But let me promise you this. That is not what is happening at the executive level of your company. They are seeing it as great advertising and fancy spiffs and in, 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 in handouts because they know that 50% of your colleagues are not even going to make their OTE, their base. And so because they're not going to even make their OTE, they can afford to pay out a little bit more on top. And this like, you know, kill or be killed, uh, you know, zero sum game mentality that we have in sales is not a profession. It's mercenary work. 
And I think that the sales profession is, is long overdue to have the same sort of institutionalized professionalism as, by the way, every other one of your colleagues at every other department has, whether they're in marketing or in HR or in product or design or engineering or wherever they work, finance, every other department in your company is treated like a profession, but you, my friends in sales, are treated like mercenaries. And the entirety of our existence, and I think you and I share this mission, is dedicated to putting professionalism and respect back into sales instead of it being seen as this commoditized marketplace, which you insert a quarter and get a dollar out. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you just throw the machine away and get another one. No, yeah, absolutely. I was just yeah getting further depressed listening to you. But um, is is yeah, in your series of posts you you were put on LinkedIn about this whole issue is is fundamental issue, and I I agree hundred percent is that compensation for sellers is not tied to value created. So it's a fundamental mismatch right there. Yeah, I mean, look at it this way. Um, if you are a company and so this is, and maybe this is the, uh, you know, so again, a lot of problems, right? So what's the solution look like? So let's start with the very beginning. Somebody started your company likely wasn't you. Cause most of the time in sales, uh, you know, sales is seen as an afterthought in the Silicon Valley. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah. I'm the classic afterthought. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, likely a couple engineers or you know an engineer and a product person came together and started your company. When they started that company, they did so with the mission to solve a problem. That's how every company starts. Just to be clear, you start an you start a company because you see a problem in the world and you say, "I can build a product, a service, in order to fix that problem." And so you you had at its core problem solving, and so. The first step is you invest a lot of money and energy into engineering, into design, into product in order to create a product, create a piece of software or hardware, often software in our, in our terms, a piece of software that can solve a problem that people face. So people have a problem, my software can solve that problem. Great. Let's take an easy example. Let's let's pick one just for the sake of going through this. Let's let's call it uh, uh, commission tracking software, right? Every every sales leader knows that tracking commission plans and comp plans is a nightmare, and it's hard to calculate. And you have different variables, and so you know, big Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. You're trying to figure out, do I have the right one? And you know, so there's a bunch of companies out there. Exactly is a big right. one. There's a bunch of new ones now. Spiff, Quota Path, uh, um, Concert. You know, I see them popping up uh, that are trying to take on this problem. And so, you know, all of these folks who started these companies thought, you know what, comp plan calculation and setting the right comp plan for a company is really, really difficult. And so I'm going to build a piece of software in order to solve that. And so they come out with the product. And then the next thing they need to do is awareness, right? You need an audience. So, you know, there's a three-step formula for any creator. Step one is to make art. Step two is to get an audience to see that art. And step three is to get paid for making that art. That's the three-step creator formula. Step one is you got to make the art that's mm-hmm. making the software. Second step is to build the audience. You need to get the people who are responsible for making comp plans or calculating comp plans, notably VPs of sales, sales ops, sales finance, et cetera, to become aware of your solution. 
And that's where marketing often comes in. And so you start to do some marketing, you make some landing pages, you run some paid ads, you you know do a bunch of things in order, you, you partnerships and sponsorships and whatnot, in order to get the word out about what your software does and how it solves this problem. And then once you have an audience and you have people who are curious about your software, then the job is to turn those people into paying customers. And that's where sales comes in. And so sales' job is to take the people who are curious about your software and turn them into paying customers. And here's where the equation starts to break apart, because that actually makes a lot of sense. That's very logical. Mm-hmm. What happens if you don't have an audience? So what happens if you've made the art, but people don't care? They don't show up. You've got your big gallery, you know, opening day, you're standing there and, you know, no one's in, no one's in line. Well, what companies have realized is no, no big deal. I'll just hire sales. I'll just, I'll just hire a bunch of people to go run around town, handing out flyers, knocking on doors, you know, right. uh, interrupting people on the street and saying, hey, 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 there's a new art gallery over here. Well, it turns out that that is really freaking annoying. <laughs> it turns out that that's a really annoying, intrusive, pushy process. The entire formula was built so that you would have companies that would make the art, then you'd have marketing that would drive demand, and then you'd have sales that would convert that demand. And where everything is broken today in our world is that there are too many companies not solving real problems because you know either the buyer doesn't care about this problem mm-hmm. or the buyer doesn't you know have any interest in this specifically and and they don't have a way to market their product they don't have a distribution strategy they don't have a user acquisition strategy they don't have a, a, a go to market strategy and so they replace that with cold outreach with tons of emails and calls and you know linkedin messages and whatever bombarding their prospects with annoying intrusive messaging in order to corral them into a sales process and to me this is the fundamental breakdown in sales is that now all of a sudden you have these armies of 22 to 25 year olds who are being told the way to get into sales is to sit there in front of an outreach or a sales loft or a Zant or whatever it might be, fire a hundred calls, send a thousand emails and blast canvas the market in order to try and drive demand. And all in the spirit of we want to solve problems for customers you know, like I think there's just such a fundamental, you know, misalignment between the core ethos of why the company was built in the first place and the way that they treat the very people that they built their solution for. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm just taking it all in. Um, yeah. So what? I, absolutely. So, and there's yeah, lots of knock-on effects from that behavior, and it's it's certainly been uh, exacerbated by sort of the you know, tidal wave of sales technology that's hit on the market that, you know, we sort of lost the thread is, is, uh, I remember being told by my, one of my parents growing up, I forget which one was, they said, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And just because we can do all these things with our sales technology, it doesn't mean that we should, but that's sort of the way they're used. I can do this. Therefore, Hey, let's do it. Let's carpet bomb what's going on out there. Yeah, and and I can understand the temptation, you know, because again, uh, the 
hard work, the real work would be to say, well, how do we organically create demand for our product? How do we help customers come to us uh, and become aware of what it is that we're doing? How do we build a product that's good enough that people actually want to come to us and buy it? But that goes against the whole, this this precedes you know, the last 10, 20 years. This is you know, the whole sort of, uh, yeah, I call it the macho ethos of sales about prospecting, right? I mean, we've, we've got a whole uh, sub-industry that's grown up about prospecting uh when it's yeah we all acknowledge we need to have prospects but it's become like this uh this test of manhood almost it seems like uh how committed you are to it that's right that's right and 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 here's the thing if you look at what if you ask any sales leader you know who do you want out there prospecting accounts who who is it that you want out there drumming up new business you'll get answers like um you know, I want I want someone who never takes no for an answer. Someone who's mm. got a lot of someone who's got a lot of grit, a lot of stamina, a lot of an extrovert. Yeah, an a extrovert. Hunter, yeah, hunter. Yeah, that's right. Hunter, hunter. Oh man, uh, let's come back to hunter. I've got a good good concept on that for you. But but let's but yes, hunter. And then you go to your buyers. You go to your customers, and you say, "What are the attributes of mm-hmm. the sales professionals?" That you would like to buy something from. You want to hunt. You want to buy from a hunter, right? Yeah, you want to <laughs> buy from someone who never takes no for an answer, that's right? right. That's, that's what I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> you know, and it turns out the qualities they list are things like someone who's patient, someone who's kind, someone who's deeply technical and an expert in their industry. Uh, well, I've got a, I've got a, a summary. It's a curious, open-minded problem solver. I like that curious, open-minded problem solver. That's what they want. That's really well stated. Thank you. And it, and I think, and I think that um, you know, we have somehow lost the fact that the very people that we're trying to hunt. So, hunter, let's come back to that really, just because mm. it's fun. So, you know, I, I, sales has this endemic knowledge of uh, terminology, lexicon on you know hunters and farmers, and a hunter is someone mm. who traditionally is someone who's out there uh, new biz, right? New business, uh, drumming up and getting new clients in. Um, Let's talk about what a hunter does. Like, what does someone do when they hunt? Like, I, I, like an actual hunter, not not a sales hunter. Uh, the, well, the way a hunter take, operates. Take take duck hunting for instance. Yeah, sure. Let's take duck hunting. So here's what you do: you dress up. You dress up in in and camouflage yourself to look like a tree or something, and then you emulate the noise of the animal to trick it into flying into the air and then you shoot and kill it and then you bring it home and you eat it well you you missed you missed you missed a part though hmm. See, the, the critical part is that you attract the ducks to come where you are so this is the irony. As people think about hunters going out, it's like big game hunting. Sure, maybe you're stalking, though you're doing it in a caravan with a bunch of guards and so on. But you know, I, I that's why I used the analogy of duck hunting. It's duck hunting. You sit in a duck blind, and you blow your duck calls, and you wait for the ducks to come where you are. You're not. <laughs> and increasingly, deer hunting. Yeah, from Wisconsin, the state where a lot of you know deer hunting goes on. In the upper Midwest, and people do the same thing. They build, you know, deer stands where again they wait for the animals to come by them. Which sounds a lot like 
<laughs> inbound leads. Yeah. FYI. And, right. And, and, and that's kind of the point, right? Is that whether, and, and first of all, I love what you're saying around, you know, building ways for people to come to you. But I think the entire metaphor is, you know, contentious because it's you versus the animal. It's like you stalking your prey. It's, you know, you defeating well, yeah, broadly, something. Yes. And, and I think that what's different in sales is that, you're trying to build partnerships and relationships. These people aren't someone that you defeat in a negotiation and then you victoriously get them to sign a contract well, in yeah. defeat. Well, that's a whole other that's a whole other stereotype that drives me nuts is the closer. And yeah, I've personally closed hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contracts over my career. I don't think I was ever in the room when the customer made up their mind to buy from me. No, it's fair. I mean, in a business-to-business, I was selling large, expensive. You know, they decided at a board meeting. They didn't decide when I was sitting there. Um, I mean, I could tell oftentimes in the meetings where the the flip switched and I knew I was going to win. But I didn't get the – they made the commitment, the decision, unless I had in a board meeting. And I think and I think where it comes back down to for me, Andy, is, is we are – we glorify winning contracts, getting signatures. Um, ringing the gong and, and, mm. and, and the bell as if the, the deal is done. You know, we always say, Oh, the deal's done. That deal's just starting. Yeah. When, when in reality, your company was born to solve the problem of the customer. And I think this is the thing that has been lost in sales is that our job as sales professionals is not to get someone to sign on a piece of paper. It's to solve the problem of the customer. And so what I would love to see is a sales compensation plan that mm-hmm. rewards sales professionals for solving customer problems. And let me give you a few examples. Sure. The first thing I think we should look at is product usage. If a sales professional sells a product to a customer, they should be rewarded if the customer actually uses and finds value in the product. Mm -hmm. The reason why I think this is so critical is because it creates a true win-win-win. If the sales professional is able to get customers on board who find value in the product, they're going to not only become evangelists for the company and for the product, they're not only going to be happy clients, which means that customer success and account management and the rest of your teams are going to thank you. They not only are going to gleefully pay and renew without you sneaking in some evergreen renewal clause into your contract and trying to enforce it. And most importantly, what it's going to do is it's going to help the sales professional understand that their job is not to just get anyone who has a pulse and signing authority to say yes, but to actually qualify the market and ensure that the right customers are coming on board. And so, yeah, you know, sh- things things like shocking that are, concept that they actually should get qualified customers, right? And 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 one more and one more thing quickly, sure. which which I think is is important. I would love to see sales professionals get a bonus if the customers that they bring on board renew. I, I find it shocking that new biz customers have a new biz sales professionals have I've, I've almost, I've, I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, I know it's common in like the insurance industry and stuff where you manage a book of business, but in software sales, I don't think I've ever seen a comp plan where the sales professional makes more money if the customer renews uh, in tw- 12 months or in 24 months, even though 
for the company, they are often not making much of a profit in the first year, and all of their profit margin is made off of the LTV of the customer, mm-hmm. the lifetime mm-hmm. value, and they're expecting customers to stay on for three or four years. Why wouldn't the company incentivize the salesperson to bring on clients who are more likely to renew, which in turn makes the company more profitable and ensures that the customers are happier that they bring it on board in the first place? Like It feels like the ecosystem just needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. Right. So if you're going to do that, though, that then starts working somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat against sort of this hyper-specialization of roles that we've had. I mean, I, I took over a group in a company years ago, <laughs> decades ago, where the salesperson and the account manager worked in tandem to develop an account, you know, beyond the initial contract signing, you know, for an existing customer. And so it was a team effort. And what you're saying is, because we don't see, oftentimes the sellers just hand it off the deal to customer success. And I think what you're advocating is that you need to keep sales involved, either with customer success or in some other form, to make sure the customer grows and renews. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think I'm I'm advocating a radical change here. I think it's a pretty elementary change, which is the job of sales ends once the customer has seen success has has seen value promised by the seller so if the sales professional comes out and says hey you know if you implement our technology you're going to go from spending an hour and a half each month calculating comp plan or calculating commissions to having it done automatically for you then great as soon as the client is able to automatically calculate their commission plan then, then your job is done. Then, then go off and sell to the next customer. Mm-hmm. But don't promise the customer that you're going to be able to calculate commission plans automatically, then sell the deal, hand it off to customer success. Customer success gets in and says, oh yeah, you can do that, but only if you use this very specific comp plan. If you use that comp plan, then you're still going to have to manually do a bunch of other stuff. And then the person's really annoyed and pissed because they're like, well, the rep didn't tell me any of this. And then customer success is trying to save the deal. And then it just becomes this contentious relationship relationship, which I see happen in companies over and over and over and over again. And so it's just, to me, it's like a, it's, it's such a simple concept. It's like, whatever you promise in the sales process, you deliver. Once you've delivered it, then you can move on. Now, someone would say, well, one of the ways you address that though, is that you have customer success involved before the contract gets signed to vet that you can live up to your commitments. Yeah. And to that, I'd say then we really don't trust sales to be able to to deliver the the message uh, it, it well enough that they're able to like like we need like a babysitter for the sales team through the CS team like I like I think that well I know what you're saying but I, but yeah I think in some cases that's that is the case I mean it's something that's more complex technically perhaps is it makes sense. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is where the rise of the sales engineer came from, right? I mean, sales mm-hmm. engineers are, 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 have become increasingly more prevalent in our in our industries as products have gotten more complex and more technical, and sales professionals have become the quote-unquote quarterback of the deal. You know, you hear this this term a lot. Well, that's, that's yeah, this is not new, by the way. I mean, this is... I was I was doing this yeah you know, back in the eighties so yeah sure but but I think but I think what's more more common these days than it used to be is the fact that 
you know, sales is in this world of specialization, the sales professional is not expected to know how the product works technically. Well, they're just expected to be able to, they're, they're, they're expected to just be able to like actually handle the sales process. Whereas I think what's changed from the eighties is that now everything's available online. Right. What has changed is now information on, on a G2 crowd, on a Captera, on a Trust Radius. Obviously, Forrester Gartner series decisions have been around for a while, but now it just takes one quick Google search for you to start to get some pretty sophisticated level information on what a company does, how it works, how do their customers feel about it. And so oftentimes, you know, the salesperson is the last person who knows who's who's involved in a purchasing process you know i'm sure you've seen these stats where you know when a when a buyer yeah. says hey i'm interested in buying something you know they ask their friends they they do research online they look up they talk to their peers they talk to reference customers they 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 talk to industry specialists they talk to everyone besides the company the sales rep yeah and so when i was just going to say it's just you know this is this whole that whole narrative is a source of great contention right and and i think that the the obvious solution to that is that the person who is working for the company as the quote unquote sales rep needs to be able to do one of two things i think there's a there's a more basic answer and then there's you know where i think the industry is going as a whole so i think the more basic answer is your sales professional needs to be as technically savvy as a sales engineer i think in 10 years there is no chance that we're going to have quote unquote quarterbacks of deals like that that like if you are a deal quarterbacker you're a dinosaur right now uh, particularly relevant given our apocalyptic state outside, <laughs> but, but, but you're a dinosaur, like, like walking dead, like you, the only future in sales is for those professionals who are able to actually roll up their sleeves and help a customer understand value, get technical with their product, knows their industry inside out, knows competitors and is able to actually be that like trusted advisor, that consultant that the customer needs. If you're not able to do that at your products and you're just like reading off a script and using your charm and sales skills and whatever, like you're a dinosaur, the, the, those, those jobs will not exist in 10 years. Yeah, and I wonder how much they really exist today, though. So, and that's and this is an interesting question because, you know, this role of what used to be called an account manager was a person that that was you're calling the quarterback, but this is the person that was the trusted advisor, right? They had the business acumen, they had the the technical to some degree know how. Obviously, they weren't you know a sales engineer, they weren't an engineer, but you couldn't be. You know, thin. You had to have substance up and down the chain. And but you're talking about a situation where you know this quarterback you're saying is just sort of flitting from deal to deal with very little value to add. And I think, yeah, I think that's reflected in sort of the surveys you see from customers. You know, C level executives saying, I think it was a Gartner study at one point saying like you know eighty percent of C suite executives say they find no value with the interactions from salespeople. So how do we how, how how do we how do we get into that position? Because that certainly wasn't hasn't always been the case. You know, I, I've only been in sales for the last twelve years, so I can't speak to anything before two thousand and eight. But since two thousand and eight, I have been in sales, and at every company I've worked for, mo- the majority of the sales professionals that worked there had no freaking idea what their product actually did. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what the customer's life really was like. 
and could not use their own product in order to achieve the very results that they were promising the, their customers to get. So, you know, I, I think it was uh, John Selig, who's this uh, sales comedian guy who said no, something really funny. Yeah. He said, said something really funny. He was like, you know, we spend all day selling products that we don't know how to use to people whose jobs we don't understand, you know, and it's like, and, and that's exactly what I have seen in my entire sales career is that we hire people and we give them the bare minimum jargon and speak in order to sound like they kind of know what they're talking about throw them out there and just, you know, pressure, pressure, pressure in order to close deals. Like I, I, you know, the, the only reason why I stood out in my, at the sales teams in which I sold at, and, you know, I think this is now somewhat on the public record. So I, I say this again with like more humility than, than, than pride, but I was a, I was the number one salesperson at every single company I ever worked at. And I was often one of the, if not the most junior member of the sales team. But the difference was that I came into sales through a very different lens than most of my peers did. You know, I spent years working on the Obama campaign and when I was in college and I ran field ops. And so I would spend my energy and time learning about all of the issues that mm-hmm. voter that voters cared about knowing all of the facts around those issues and then calling voters up and having conversations about voters telling me they wouldn't w- vote for for uh, at the time senator obama um, because he was against abortion or because he was going to take away their guns or because he wasn't he was a muslim or you know there were all these like things right. that we would hear and I had to be so well versed in my facts that if I wasn't able to like, you know, spar with the the voter on the issue and educate the voter on what was real and what was not, then I would never be able to change their minds. And 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 so I walked into sales with the idea that I had to be much smarter than the person on the phone about what I was talking about. And yeah. that was like the bare fundamentals of my job. Well, let me tell you something, Andy. I'm looking to buy a data analytics platform right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to call out any names because that, mm-hmm. that's not helpful here. But I've spoken to five vendors uh, who sell data visualization, data analytics platforms. All five of their sales reps know less about data analytics and data viz than I do. And I am not a data scientist right. or data analyst. But their sales reps are talking. And any time I ask a question, they, they immediately have to defer to the sales engineer who's on the phone. Immediately it's like, oh, well, hey, uh, hey, 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 Sally, can you take that one? Because I, uh, you know, I don't really know about that. You know, I'm not the expert on that. You know? and, and all the person's doing is giving me this like super fluffy demo of their product inside of some sort of a sandbox environment where they're clicking things around. And any time I ask a tech, even lightly technical question that's off the script, they're unable to answer it. Or if they do answer it, I know for a fact because I'm listening to the answer that that they're half bullshitting and half hoping right. that they're right. Yeah. So this is a, this is a relatively recent development, by the way. I mean, I can tell you from the perspective of 43 years and complex B2B sales, it was, it's not been that way, right? So is this because of you know, the, the specialized sales roles for AEs? Is it because you know, we put these enormous pressures like for pipeline coverage ratios, which you know, reps don't have the opportunity to work any, <laughs> any deal deeply, so they basically just play the odds? I mean, and so if, if, if we've got it set up the way we do, there's no incentive for someone to become deep. Well, I think I think we will have that incentive very quickly. 
you know, because what I am seeing as the rising time, the, the new wave of sales evaluation of sales purchasing. Let, let, let me start here. And, and this is kind of the final point I want to leave you with, because I think, you know, we, you and I can spend all day on this topic, but I think I really want to end with this point. Um, there, there's a reason why cold outbound continues to happen in our world. There's a reason why we continue to send emails. There's a reason why we continue to, you know, kind of do cold calling and, and cold messaging. It's because it works, right? It does work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work nearly as well as we think. And it has many, many, many deleterious side effects that, yep. you know, companies have to pay the price for for years to come. But it does unequivocally work, period. Now, the fascinating question is why? why does cold calling work? Why does cold emailing work? And I, in my understanding, you know, limited, this is just my opinion, but this is why, what I, you know, you, you, you get, you get what you pay for with your, with your podcast guests, <laughs> I guess, um, which is a bunch of free, free hoopla. You're, you're um, being, you're being paid at scale. <laughs> yeah. From your lips to God's ears. Yeah. Um, and so, and so look, uh, the reason why it works is because at the end of the day, buyers do have problems. They have real problems that they need to solve. And they don't have an alternative way to find solutions. The only way to really understand if this product can truly help me or not is if I do the demo and if I sit through the painful discovery process and if I have to wait two and a half meetings to even get freaking pricing from this company is because at the end of the day, calculating sales commission plans to continue with the analogy that we've been using to 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 calculate sales commission plans is a pain in the ass and and I would like to not have to do this I would like to find a way to automate away this problem now this technology may or may not do it but it you know it the 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 potential benefit here is worth the price of of admission and what we are building at bravado and by the way we are by far not the only company that's building. There are many other organizations that are building this. What we are building, though, is an alternative to the traditional sales process. What we are building is instead of talking to one of these companies and having them pitch you and tell you why their product's great and then have to go and talk to three of their competitors and hear their pitch for why their product's great and then, you know, kind of separate the chaff from reality and the Mm -hmm. bullshit from the whatever Mm -hmm. and then make a decision. What if you could instead talk to someone who's an expert in sales compensation software, who knows all of the players in the space and who can be your call it sales side, you know, buyer side Sorry. salesperson. Yeah, right. that's right. And, and by the way, this isn't a new concept either. I mean, there's, there's, you know, channel sales has existed in this format mm-hmm. in many ways. Uh, you know, Accenture and Boston yeah, Consulting lots Group of, and lots of consulting Bain groups go, right. Do, do do this as well. But that's not the way the mid-market buys software. The way the mid-market buys software and SMBs buy software is they have to do it on their own, and we're building an alternative for that. And, and the reason why I'm so passionate to build that is because for the first time, we're putting customers first. Because where this whole conversation started and began it, it, you know, was oriented around the fact that the job of sales is to put customers first. It's to solve problems. It's been so bastardized and so uh, you know, manipulated and changed up that we can't even recognize that for what it is. And I think the world that I'm so passionate about seeing is a world in which a buyer has an alternative and then can say, no, I'd rather work with someone I trust. I'd rather work with someone who's an expert in the space. I'd rather work with someone who has my interest in heart as opposed to having the interest of 
uh, you know, the vendor and doing whatever they can to get a deal closed. Okay. So when are we going to see that? Uh, stay tuned. I think, uh, you know, early, early October first version comes out. All right. Well, put me on your list. I want to be the first to see it. I, I hope so, my friend. I think, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're really excited to try and, uh, you know, shake up the traditional sales compensation structure, shake up the traditional sales model. Cause I really think that most sales professionals at their heart do want to do right by their clients. They're just not set up in a system and an incentive structure that allows them to do so. Yeah. The incentive structure has them focused on the wrong activities. Absolutely. And we'll have you back and we'll talk more about that because I think that, that, yeah, there are changes. Everything needs to be touched. You know, how we how we hire, how we train, how we train managers, uh, how we structure our management teams. Uh, we we're completely off base as a perf- performance based profession for how we do that today, and we fundamentally manage sales the same way we have for a hundred years. And to your point, it's time to change. Yeah, I I, I appreciate what you do for the profession, Andy, and I appreciate your uh, kind of, you know, ethos, your spirit and your, and your drive to push our industry forward. Look, I love sales, right? I think that, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I am so passionate about the profession. It's, it is, it is my, my heart and soul. I spent my entire career doing this and, and I have so much love for sales professionals and for the profession as a whole that I'm willing to tear down the parts that don't make sense, that don't work and instead build a world that does. I'm there with you. Because I don't think there are many parts that do work right now. So, yeah, I think a complete rethinking is in the cards. And, yeah, we'll see it one way or another. But, yeah, we'll have you back on. We'll talk more about it because it's it's really necessary. And people need to get their eyes opened. So, um, Sahil. If people want to find out more about Bravado or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah, um, easiest way to get a hold of me. You can always find me on LinkedIn, of course. Just look me up, Sahil Mansuri. Um, you know, I'm also on Bravado. Uh, you just go to bravado.co uh, and sign up there. Uh, you know, we have a direct chat platform. I'm always responding to members and communicating through a community there. Uh, but ultimately, what I what I really hope that you know folks get from this uh, from this podcast uh, is the fact that you're not crazy. You know, if you're sitting around thinking, wow, sales is really hard. Wow. Like none of this doesn't really make, doesn't really make a lot of sense. And like, I wish things were a little bit different. You're not alone. You're not crazy. Look, Andy, I can't tell you how many messages I get on LinkedIn every single day from folks saying, say, Hill, I can't publicly like or comment on this post. Cause I'm worried my boss is going to see, or I'm worried that my company is going to see. So, what I want to, you know, but I want to just let you know what you're saying makes so much sense. Like I'm, I'm here, like I support it. Thank you for standing up for sales. And, and what I want to do is, is encourage those people to say, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. You know, like we will build a better world for sales professionals. And I'm excited to see us come together to do that. Perfect. All right. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Sahil Mansuri, for sharing his insights and passion with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate that. And you can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help with that. 
And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.